Warning. This episode contains description of sexual assault situations and discusses suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 2000 through 2009. Today's story is of a male murderer from 2006. So grab you some water and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 2006. In 2006, Pluto was downgraded from a planet to a dwarf planet by the International Astronomical Union. That same year, the popular TV show Dexter A series about a serial killer you actually rooted for aired its first season. Another thing that happened in 2006 was a suicide that opened up a web of lies. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. It was a sad morning for the people of Lorena, Texas and the bigger surrounding area of Waco, Texas. It was the Monday after Palm Sunday, and people packed one of the largest funeral homes in the city to mourn the loss of Carrie Baker, who had tragically taken her life a few days earlier on March 8, 2006. She was just 31 at that time, and she was a beloved preacher's wife of a small Baptist church called Crossroads. She led the children's program at the church and also taught third grade at a nearby elementary school. No one talked about the suicide at the funeral service because they all knew why she lost her fight. In late March of every year, for the past seven years, Carrie went into seclusion as this was around the anniversary of her second child, Cassidy's death, whom after turning one, was found to have a brain tumor. She died four months later. And since then, it was known that this is just how Carrie acted around this time of year. She would stay cooped up in bed for a day or two and watch videos of Cassidy from her first year of life. Everyone believed that the pain of losing Cassidy just became too much, and she went to join her. Her husband, Matt Baker, was the one who found her and called 911, telling the operator, I think my wife just committed suicide. The paramedics arrived within five minutes and they saw Carrie lying on the floor next to the bed and her lips were blue. He explained that he went out to get a video and gas for his car and when he arrived home, he found his wife lifeless on the bed with an empty bottle of Unisom, a generic sleep aid, and a suicide note on the side table. The typed note was written to Matt and said, Please continue to be the great dad to our little girls. Love them every day for me. I am sorry. I love you, Carrie. Matt told the Hewitt police that Carrie had been talking about suicide for the past two weeks, but didn't think she was serious. One of the officers called a justice of the peace a little after midnight and told him they believed it was an apparent suicide and also told him about the pills and the suicide note. 
The justice of the peace never came to the house, but wrote on her death certificate, overdose of unisom sleep aid. He also didn't feel there was any need for an autopsy, so he never ordered one. Texas law states that a justice of the peace can conduct an inquest or determine the cause in circumstances of a person's death where the person died, where the body was found, or at any other place determined to be reasonable by the justice. It also allows for the judge to act on information from any credible person. So since he trusted what the officer was telling him, he was able to write his report without going to the house. So with nothing further, the police left and Matt was able to comfort his daughters, Kinsey, nine, and Grace, five. At the funeral service, Matt seemed frozen in sorrow, but afterward, he was able to stand on stage and state that he would be preaching the next week on Easter Sunday. He even whispered to a friend, God has not abandoned me. He will give me the strength to carry on. People started to compare Matt to Job from the Bible, who had remained true to God despite enduring one trial after another. He also had the community of Baptist ministers send him emails and letters, praising him for his devotion. And members of his church let him know that they would be willing to do anything to help out in his time of need. Linda and Jim Dolan, Carrie's parents, who also attended the Crossroads Church, wept while he gave that first sermon after her death. Matt spoke about how Carrie was just like Jesus and had made a triumphal entry into heaven. Death could not control her, he said. Death could not control her at all. Her parents believed that Carrie, for reasons they would never understand, had decided she could no longer go on. This belief, however, changed quickly about a week after Matt gave that Easter sermon. When Linda's three sisters, Nancy Lanham, Kay Bailey, and Jennifer Biles, and Nancy's daughter, Lindsay Pick, dropped by for a cup of coffee. They couldn't keep quiet any longer and expressed their concerns about Matt. They explained that none of them trusted him and that they had heard stories of his sexual indiscretions. Her sister, Nancy, told her a story from back in 1998 about a teenage girl who had come by to see Cassidy at the hospital and said that Matt had taken her aside, put his hand on her leg, and asked her if she wanted to go with him to an empty visitor's room. Linda denied this, saying it couldn't be true, so they gave her another example. Kay told her how Matt approached her daughter one evening, had hugged her suggestively, brushed his hand against her breast, and asked if she was wearing panties. Linda's head was spinning and landed on some memories of when Carrie told her that Matt had been unfairly accused of saying something flirtatious to a teenager when he worked at First Baptist. Linda also recalled Carrie mentioning a peculiar incident in 1997 with a woman named Deanne Avalos, who lived with her 16-year-old daughter in a townhouse across the parking lot from where the Bakers were living. Deanne had informed Matt and Carrie that her daughter had told her that Matt had started talking to her in the parking lot 
asked if she had ever been kissed and then grabbed her and kissed her. But Linda also remembered that Carrie assured her that the teenager had made up the story just to get attention. With these thoughts rolling around in her head, her sisters dropped the biggest piece of information they had. Kay explained how she was friends with the Waco therapist that Carrie was seeing, and the therapist confided in her about the last visit she had with Carrie before her death, stating that the session started off with Carrie saying she was in a much better place with her grief, but that things weren't great at home. She thought that her husband no longer had any desire to be close to her, even leaving the house that morning without saying he loved her. Then Carrie paused before launching into a fear that she was now concerned with, that Matt was having an affair. But then she added one extra detail, that she had found a small, unlabeled bottle in Matt's briefcase filled with pills. Then Carrie looked at her therapist and said she believed Matt was planning to kill her. After that talk with her sisters and niece, it was decided they must investigate to get to the truth of what happened to Carrie. But these women had no idea what they were doing, and nothing came of any of the investigating they tried to do. Not until, that is, Linda's monthly cell phone bill came in the mail. This bill included Matt's phone records, because when him and his family moved back to Waco, they added their phones to Linda's plan so that they wouldn't have to pay a deposit. This friendly gesture ignited their investigation to the next level. As Linda found that Matt had been calling a certain number over and over since early January, even calling this number the morning of Carrie's death and the night after her funeral. She Google searched the number and saw it was registered to Larry Bowles who had been the minister of music at Crossroads Church the first few months Matt was pastor. She thought this odd, as she didn't think they were that good of friends. A few weeks went by when Linda got a tip from a friend saying that Matt invited a young, beautiful blonde to help him supervise his daughter Kinsey's sleepover. This friend witnessed the two sitting on the couch together and how Matt at one time put his head on her shoulder and then proceeded to put his head in her lap. The woman's name was Vanessa. Linda's brain started spinning again. Larry Bowles had a daughter named Vanessa, who was recently divorced and back to living with her parents. This is who Matt must have been calling. Linda went to the Hewitt Police Department pleading with the detectives to launch a criminal investigation, but they told her there was still no evidence of murder, and she was wasting her time. She ignored their comments, went home, and called a lawyer named Bill Johnston. Bill Johnston spent 13 years as a prosecutor with the U.S. Attorney's Office, known for taking on cases no one else would take because they didn't believe they could win. Bill actually started the investigation that led to the arrest and conviction of a serial killer, Kenneth McDuff also known as the Broomstick Killer. Let me stop here for a second. I went into a deep dive researching this Texas serial killer, but it became too interesting for me to tell y'all information about it on this episode. 
but I will devote a full episode to this case when I do a season on the 1960s decade. Johnston, however, went up against the FBI in the early 90s, claiming he had evidence suggesting that the FBI had lied about its actions during the siege on the Branch Davidian compound. The Justice Department charged him with obstruction of justice for not producing all of his notes about the matter, but he ended up pleading guilty to a lesser charge of misprison of a felony and was allowed to keep his law license. He then worked mostly civil litigation, but when Linda approached him about this case, he saw that he could feel like his old self again by accepting a case no one else wanted. To help work this case, he brought together a team of retired lawmen, former Deputy U.S. Marshal Mike McDarma and former Department of Public Safety undercover agent John Bennett. What they found was a trail of salacious information from the pastor's past. I would like to introduce you to the Decorum Group, an event and seasonal decorating company based out of San Antonio, Texas. They bring the etiquette of design to your events and decor. Celebrations and holidays have a way of bringing people together. The Decorum Group brings the pieces together to cultivate a unique experience for every occasion. You can gather more information on all the social media platforms or at thedecorumgroup.com. Matt Baker grew up in Kerrville, Texas. He was very loyal to the Baptist faith from a very young age. Attending Sunday school, singing in the youth choir, and going on mission trips. In high school, he declared on a youth retreat that he was dedicating his life to the ministry, which helped in choosing the college he would go to, Baylor University. He started at Baylor in 1990 with his major as church recreation. His goal was to start off as a youth minister before moving on to be a lead pastor. While at college, he signed up to be a student trainer for Baylor's athletic program. And in December of 1991, he offered to help out a female trainer who was a freshman clean out one of the locker rooms. This next part is taken from an article in Texas Monthly, which describes the incident like this. As they headed toward the locker room, she said, he began poking her bottom with a broomstick. Once they were inside the locker room, he pinned her arms behind her back, tried to kiss her, and then lifted her onto the sink and spread her legs. She said she managed to bite him on the shoulder and escape, but he grabbed her again, forced her onto a bench, and began rubbing her pants directly over her vagina. A few minutes later, she said he stood up and told her, I got what I wanted, and left. Coach found her hysterically crying by the side of the football stadium, and she told him everything. Matt was later called into a vice president's office to tell his side of the story. According to Matt, the vice president's comment to him was that she had falsely accused someone in high school of doing something like this. And then he said, okay, we're not going to do anything with this. And that was it. Administrators did type up a report, but took no action. The girl ended up dropping out of school and moved away. 
Matt continued on his path to achieve his goals, receiving a prized internship at First Baptist of Waco. Later, he worked at the church's recreation center and helped run the summer youth camp. In June 1994, Carrie Dolan began working at that summer camp as a lifeguard, and her and Matt instantly connected. They went to see the movie When a Man Loves a Woman for their first date. They got married three months later. Carrie's mom, Linda, later stated, I tried to get them to postpone the wedding for a year, but Carrie told me there was no need to wait. Also remembering, I have to admit, Matt was very mature. He was always polite and exceedingly sincere. My husband and I kept saying, hey, he's going to become a Baptist minister. What could be the problem? Shortly after the wedding, a report was made to the recreation minister at First Baptist from a female custodian. Matt had grabbed her in the bathroom in the church recreation building and told her he wanted to have sex with a mature woman. Around that same time, a separate report was made to the pastor stating that Matt had cornered a teenage girl in a small room where the roller skates were stored and made sexually suggestive comments to her. Matt denied everything when confronted with the allegations. And since there was no concrete proof, he decided not to fire Matt. They also did not feel the need to notify the Baptist General Convention of Texas, which is the organization that coordinates the activities of most of the Baptist churches in the state. Baptist churches have no defined hierarchies and operate independently from one another. So there are no rules about having to notify of any misconduct by the Baptist pastors. So when other pastors called with an interest in hiring Matt, the first Baptist pastor, who is now retired, didn't mention anything. He later stated, All I can say is that he was very young, and I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. If these stories weren't true, I didn't want to be known as the man who ruined his career. And with that, Matt kept climbing towards his goals. After his graduation, Matt took a part-time job at the Youth and Music Minister at the First Baptist Church of Robinson. And to help supplement his income, he also ran an after-school youth program at the YMCA. But just two months after his daughter, Kinsey, was born, he was fired in June 1996. The director at the YMCA had received four written reports from four young female employees that claimed Matt had sexually propositioned them. One woman's report said Matt had asked her to meet him in the building's attic and then told her, I'm horny and I want to have sex with you right now. Another reported that her and Matt were meeting to discuss a business matter when he suddenly said, I just want to F you right here, right now touched her pants near her genitalia, and put her hands on his crotch. But when Matt was asked about these incidents, he said that the claims from First Baptist were just a troubled teenage girl and denied the custodian claim altogether. When discussing what happened at the YMCA, he said he knew nothing about the four claims against him, stating that he was asked to resign after YMCA administrators believed 
he had asked one of the employees about her sexual exploits with her boyfriend, but that it was all a misunderstanding. He had asked her to stop talking about her sex life at work because children might hear her. graduated from George W. Truett Theological Seminary in 2002, and after bouncing around from a couple pastoral positions, the Baker family moved back to Waco, where Matt was asked to be the pastor of Crossroads Baptist, which had about 50 members and was also the church Carrie's parents attended. They were hoping Matt would bring in more families to the church, which he was successful at doing and Carrie enjoyed getting involved as well. She taught the children's Sunday school and led Bible studies. She also got a job at a nearby elementary school, while Matt accepted a job to be the chaplain for the Waco Center for Youth. They seemed to be thriving, but as the anniversary of her daughter's death was nearing, Carrie started sending Matt some disturbing emails that said things like, I feel like I am just about to die. This might sound crazy, but I think, for the first time, I've realized that Cassidy is not coming back. And over the next few weeks, her messages to him got even gloomier, telling him she felt as if she were sinking, stressed, and tired. And on March 21st, the day before the anniversary, she wrote, I cannot get my hands to stop shaking. I haven't felt this bad in a long time. Carrie's really good friend, Jill Holes, remembered back saying, I promise you, most days she was so cheerful and so funny. But I have to admit, when March would come and she'd lock herself in her house, I did worry about her. But Jill did not sense Carrie's mood to be different than it was during this time in past years. But in late March, Carrie told her that she and Matt got into a huge fight about how they had prayed during the last days of Cassidy's life. She explained that Matt had prayed that God would make Cassidy cancer-free and let her live. Carrie had prayed that Cassidy wouldn't have to bear more pain than she could handle, even if it meant that God took her up to heaven. She went on to tell Jill that Matt lashed out at her for saying a prayer like that. He then continued to criticize her the next day through an email which said, you and I have discussed the fact that your prayer was the one that was answered that night. I know deep down I hold a grudge against God and you for him answering your prayer and not mine. In some ways, I do hold you, the fact that it was your prayer that was answered, to blame for her death. Carrie was devastated by Matt's words. He had never talked to her like that before. Blaming her for Cassidy's death and holding a grudge against God made her believe something was going on with Matt. He didn't even seem interested in their marriage anymore and was definitely not interested in having sex with her. She wrote back to Matt, I feel like you just took a knife and put it through my heart. I'm not sure how a marriage can last when one person blames the other for the death of that child. Later, she emailed her mom that she believed they were headed for divorce. The week leading up to her death, she appeared normal, people saying she was her usual outgoing self. And that Friday, she interviewed at a junior high school for an opening as a reading specialist. 
that she seemed genuinely excited about taking a new job that fall. Later that day, Carrie, Matt, and the kids were seen late in the afternoon at the YMCA for Kenzie's swim practice. Witnesses stated that Carrie seemed normal and was cheerfully greeting people she knew, but that was the last time anyone saw her. Matt Cawthon, an old friend of Johnston's, was a member of the Texas Rangers, the statewide law enforcement team, and Johnston recruited his help in their investigation. Cawthon agreed, unofficially, to help. In three months after Carrie's death, Cawthon finally convinced authorities to conduct an autopsy. However, it was too late to test for drugs in her blood, but they did find unisum in her muscle tissue along with traces of Ambien, a drug Carrie was not known to take. But Carrie had been embalmed, which meant the pathologist couldn't accurately determine how much medication she had ingested. There was no way, he concluded, to determine how she had died. But the investigative team was not deferred by this news, and Johnston hired David Stafford, former head of the toxicology lab at the University of Tennessee, to study the pathologist's report. In that same Texas Monthly article, it explained, Stafford determined that there is no trace of the drugs in her stomach. If Carrie had overdosed by swallowing pills, he stated, some of those drugs would have had to have gotten into her digestive tract. Obviously, he said, drugs did not kill her. The manner of death was changed from suicide to undetermined. I want to say a huge thank you to Texas Monthly, CBS News, ABC News, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss part two of this crazy case from the year 2006. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at crimesofadecadepod and on Twitter at crimesofadecade.